Welcome to Richard Gage 911 Unleashed and as you can see I have an esteemed guest from here at Anarchapulco 2022 my hotel mate and friend Andy Kaufman and it's Kaufman isn't it so I was corrected by Ernie Hancock our MC here at Anarchapulco yeah that's correct Richard Dr Andrew Kaufman he is one of the foremost researchers and providers of real information about COVID-1984. Now, that's not your word. <laughs> I'll put that on. It's accurate. <laughs> and it's accurate. Okay. And as we're going to see, the solution to the disease going around Genetic experimental therapy. You going to buy that one too? Uh, sure. <laughs> okay, we'll get into it. <laughs> but I'm honored to have uh, Dr. Kaufman uh, on our show, Richard Gage 911 Unleashed. Um, very, very excited. And I'm going to have him give you his background. And then we're going to talk first, Andy, about the your experience of 9-11 and what happened uh, to your thinking and your world as it was happening and, and later. How did you wake up to the truth about 9-11? But first, let's go into your background so people know a little bit more about you and why they're so lucky to have you here. Thanks. Well, <clears throat> I think it's important to note that whatever your background you're capable of understanding what's going on in the world and with health and medicine at the present moment if you do some due diligence and uh, investigate some things you know outside the mainstream narrative just like we do with other topics of course so you know the the patterns and the deceptions that are going on right now are not new obviously you come to them from through the 9-11 originally and uh, there are many other operations like that uh, to be exposed and many of the same tactics I believe you know uh, we're experiencing now uh, maybe some of them were tested um, in other operations like uh, like 9-11 so you know I come from a medical background I've done a lot of different things related to health I've done uh, research uh, for the CDC and the New York Health Department uh, in AIDS surveillance I've done uh, laboratory research in uh, academia and then also in the biotech uh, pharmaceutical industry. And I was um, most recently uh, on the faculty as a forensic psychiatrist at a medical school for a while. Um, I did some research of my own in that area and some writing and also started a medical device company for a while. So <clears throat> I got exposure to all these different aspects of, you know, what you might call, uh, Jennifer Daniels calls the medical industrial complex. I love that term. I haven't heard it. Uh, so it gives me, <clears throat> excuse me, my, uh, I've been talking way too much at Anarchapulco. Uh, the people here have really been receptive to the truth about virology and germ theory. So that's meant um, they are asking me so many questions that I've run out of voice. And that is to say they've been receptive <laughs> to 
your um, research about virology and germ theory, which is different than narrative. As yes, yes, understanding uh, your talk absolutely, um, because the simple fact is that very few people have actually looked at the scientific basis for uh, disease-causing viruses. I mean, looking at the basic experiments that show the existence of these viruses, uh, show the genome sequencing, and the, that try to attempt to show that, that they cause a disease like the causal relationship. And it's really unfortunate um, because the narrative that viruses and germs cause disease is so ingrained in our culture in our experience and of course it is supported and reinforced by all the institutions by educational institutions by government institutions and of course by healthcare institutions it's very hard to question some of the basic premises and i didn't even do this myself earlier in my career as a physician and you know even uh vaccinated my children when they were younger because i didn't look into the research about it and um, when I finally did, I, I found out, you know, some really astonishing things that actually they, they haven't proved any of these things. Mm. They've done uh, experiments which are like... Uh, wait, 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 we're going to get into those experiments. Well, I just meant that they were like um, a proxy mm -hmm. for the real thing. They weren't actually looking at what happens in reality. They were trying to make an artificial version of reality in the lab and say that that's what happens in reality. Mm. And so it's kind of like a simulation of sorts. And I want to get into that. Yes. I, I, I took you off track there. <laughs> that's <much>. okay. <laughs> I, I, we, we want to know what happened with you and 9-11, if you could tell Yeah, that. absolutely. Well, <clears throat> I was actually in medical school on the day of 9-11 and I uh, grew up in Staten Island which is right across the harbor obviously from the World Trade Center and in fact where my mother lives now she has a view of that part of Manhattan from her window and she lived there at that time so I was driving to medical school <laughs> for regular classes that morning and uh, I heard about what was going on um, of all places on the Howard Stern radio show um, and he was very seriously talking about it, obviously, because everybody stopped what they were doing at the time. Mm. And it was very confusing. And it was very traumatizing. And I thought, well, my stepfather actually commutes right past that area because uh, the Staten Island Ferry, which goes into Manhattan, lets out not too far from the World Trade Center. And some of the subway stations are right there. So my first thought was, was he there at the time? Is he okay? It was impossible to get a phone line to anywhere in New York because of uh, probably everybody in the country was calling people in New York. So I was, you know, on edge. And then I went, when I got to the school, we said, hey, look what's happening. You know, are we going to have regular classes today or do we get some time to like try to process this? And they said, oh, regular classes. <laughs> of course. Everybody else is going home from work and doctors keep working, you know, no matter what. And, um, you know, of course, I found out that no one in my family was hurt, but uh, I do have a family member who was in the firefighters academy at the time and they called him in to help with the cleanup and of course. For him, it was an extremely traumatic and emotional experience and mm. can't even talk to him about it this day. But it really 
it wasn't until years later that I had opened myself up to looking at things differently and, you know, sort of going down the conspiracy rabbit hole. And that's when I really, I mean, I never felt that the explanation they gave about 9-11 made sense, right? And I had known that, that they were promoting all of these wars and terrorism. I know that they had the um, Patriot Act written long before 9-11 and, you know, and the massive uh, number of pages involved. And then it passed so quickly without enough time for any human being to be able to even read it. So I knew that that was part of the plan in some respect, but I wasn't aware of, you know, the false flag narrative and I wasn't aware of the Hegelian dialectic at the time. So later on, when I started learning about those things and, you know, the first topic that I uh, sort of woke up with was actually climate change, because that was something that I was really passionate about previously. I mean, I had driven a hybrid vehicle. I investigated, uh, you know, uh, geodynamic heating. And, uh, you know, I, I buried my head in that science, uh, you know, for weeks, and also was astonished that there was no evidence to support the main narrative. And so um, I first came to uh, James Corbett's work mm -hmm. on 9-11. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it just, it rang true right from the start and uh, you know I'd always seen the, those buildings fall and it you know it appeared like a controlled demolition you know I've seen that many times in videos and not, not in person but you know that that I knew that's not what happens from you know fire <laughs> so you could just intuit that right away well it was yeah just like this just doesn't make sense. You know, how could some guys with, uh, you know, carpet cutting knives uh, take over planes and destroy and wreak all this havoc? And also, you know, wh where was the Air Force? <laughs> mm -hmm. I found out later, of course, that they were all on training exercises that diverted them from yeah, responding. That's just a coincidence, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of coincidences. And even with COVID, as we work our way into that, when did you learn, though, about Building 7? Yes, well, of course, that was part of um, my uh, awakening. Oh. I, I don't think that was even on the radar initially. I mean, certainly it, it was mentioned, of course. In fact, you know, I'm sure you know it was mentioned in Europe before it even went down, that it went down. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The BBC announced but, it 20 minutes right, before it happened. There you go. But it was not, um, you know something that was played up of course uh, because you know you had the the three different sites too so you know there was the, the pennsylvania site and then of course uh the pentagon so it just kind of got lost in the mix i think i'm probably on purpose because no plane hit it so how did it fall down <laughs> well it's it's just the math you're just not doing the math correctly we've got two planes bringing down three buildings what's wrong with with that math it's it's like uh, you must be a, a bowler <laughs> <laughs> exactly so so how did you hear about 9-11 was just through the grapevine or was there like one experience no uh, well the truth about um it? so after i started waking up and uh, my whole world was turning upside down and uh no one else outside of the people who talked to me about this originally wanted to talk to me about uh, any of these subjects. Really? Yes. 
So I, um, someone gave me sort of a, a little piece of advice and he had some interesting way of, of describing this, but he said, you know, that if you just study these conspiracies and the truth about these issues, it brings you to a very dark place. He called it a dark unveilings, learning that material. A dark unveiling. And I so like he said um, to balance that out, you also need to have light unveilings, which really is uh, his word for spiritual development, um, which, which really is not anything, um, you know, like religious or new agey. What it just means is that you work on yourself. You develop yourself into a better and better person. And part of that uh, comes from changing your perspective mm. to a broader, more, uh, a larger perspective of the, you know, the entire nature of existence, uh, what holds in the long term in the future, like beyond the normal scales of time. Mm. And when you come from this type of an orientation, you're willing to consider things more objectively. And part of it is, of course, developing your abilities of discernment to distinguish between truths and falsehoods. And so he uh, introduced me to um, a spiritual philosopher and teacher who also talks in this parapolitical realm. And um, so I listened to some of his material. His name is Neil Kramer. And um, there's a whole kind of fellowship community of all people who are trying to go through this process, trying to educate themselves, become better people, deal with their traumas and triggers, the, you know, the shadow work, uh, which really dovetailed with the kind of stuff that I had learned through psychiatry that helps people, you know, deal with their relationship patterns that are toxic and, uh, you know, repeating the same mistakes and self-sabotage and all of that kind of stuff. So it really rang true to me. And this community of fellowship, you know, which was everybody um, on their own volition, they, they really just had incredible insights and incredible, um, you know, support for each other through the process. Mm -hmm. And um, they were talking about all these different topics and introduced me to different things. And of course, you know, 9-11 is kind of the gateway to waking up for most people. Whenever I ask people about their story, how did you first wake up to the truth? You know, 90% of the people say 9-11. That is why we are still doing Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed now, 15 years later, because I keep hearing that, that 9-11 that Let's not call it the gateway it's, drug. Well, no, but, but it's it's the the red pill gateway. It, you know, it's the ultimate red pill, because it's for most people. Is it not easier to get understand that we've been betrayed by our own government media? What complex and the and and the arms industry uh, industrial complex. So we've we. We have to, um, I, I take, I take a lot of hope from what you're saying because at this point I've invested another 15 years of my life trying to expose this. And, and I've been hearing for three days now at this conference, 
9-11 woke me up. Or you woke me up, you know. <laughs> People are telling me that. And it again and again and again. I'm going, okay, I think I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So anyway, thank you for, for that point. Well, but, you know, the only way anyone is going to wake up is if they hear about these things. So, you know, that's kind of what what we're doing right we're just trying to get the information out there and then let other people look at that information and decide for themselves you know what really went on but um you know it's apparent that if you look at the mainstream explanation right like for example the the crater that was left in the ground in pennsylvania there were no plane parts there so what happened to the plane parts if it, if it was caused by an airplane, you know, and it, you just how there's that's not an explanation. There has to be another explanation, and it's not coming from the mainstream narrative. So you have to look elsewhere to find out, and then you can put the pieces together. But you know, it, it's certainly not the first time that a government has you know acted in a way that doesn't represent the interests of its constituents. <laughs> I mean, we see this you know throughout history. And um, many people want to just deny the history or say that, oh, if it happened in another country or in another time, it's not the same. It couldn't happen here because this is different. But the truth is that those people in that time also probably said the same thing, though. Oh, yeah, we know it happened in other places, but this is different. Our government would never do this, right? It doesn't fit with our culture. But, you know, the nature of organizations is always to um, ultimately feed their self-preservation. And that's a different goal, it's a different mission than the original mission, right? Which was really to safeguard the rights of the people. That's why our federal government was set up, mm -hmm. um, so that the states don't infringe upon the, our God-given rights. And then to provide just a, a small battery of services that would help integrate because the states are geographically separate. But what we've seen is that uh, the government has totally changed over the history of our nation. And, um, you know, it's totally obvious that their goals and their purpose is different. And it's not um, in line, it's not convergent with the real needs and the will of the citizenry. And these are all just examples that show this objectively in a more extreme way. But the overall pattern is that, you know, we can't trust the government at all. So we have the responsibility to pay close attention to what's going on um, so that we can see when the corruption, um, the greed, the power plays are going to affect us. And then only then when we have that realization, can we do anything about it? anything to protect and stand up for ourselves so we have to be informed of course <laughs> of course so you're touching on something here that I've been very nervous about personally having been invited to to be with and speak to a group of anarchists here at Anarch Apolco and I'm wondering if you've had some of the same reservations or or what have you learned about anarchy that's caused you to feel a little better about it, if that's true? Well, um, you know, I've been through this a few years ago, and of course, uh, 
you know, the way anarchists have been portrayed in the popular culture is, you know, that they're uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, crazy teenage boys running around the city breaking windows, right? Mm -hmm. And it's always equated with chaos. Mm -hmm. But obviously, you can see it's not chaotic at this conference, right? It's well organized by anarchists. But the word anarchy simply means without ruler. Right. And it means that you have the ability to be autonomous, to uh, make your own decisions. Right. But it also means that you have a responsibility when you make those decisions that they follow the natural law or God's law or that they don't infringe upon other people's rights also to act according to their wishes and desires. <coughs> so it doesn't mean that that it's chaos mm -hmm. but it's a, a much different way of organizing it's uh, going to be based on you know your local relationships with people that you can get together and decide okay we want to form a committee or a council or a tribunal to resolve disputes or to manage uh, removing snow from the roads or these kinds of things but you don't need to have a centralized top-down authoritarian leader telling you what to do, right? It can come from the ground up and be spontaneous and according to however people want to organize and put things together. And if there's someone that says, I don't want to be a part of that, well, then they don't have to be a part of that, mm. right? Everything is voluntary. In fact, some people really have used the word voluntarist because, because anarchy is so charged with these uh, false meanings about chaos and violence and looting, voluntarist is much more you know, accurate because ev that means that everything that you would do in your life would be voluntary rather than compelled. Mm -hmm. um, so it gives you a lot more freedom, of course, where you need that responsibility. But, you know, it's not so the people who are here, right, they're um, philosophically aligned with this, but in their day to day lives, they're not actually living this way fully because we're still under this government control. Mm -hmm. But you still can do this in many many ways but for this to, type of situation to work at a societal level the people need to work on themselves they need to learn how to be responsible for all of their needs and uh, of course once we can do that then we can be charitable and help take care of those who are less fortunate but you have to change this ingrained cultural attitude that you know we have in the united states where it, people are very infantilized. They rely on the government to take care of them or someone else to take care of them when things aren't going right, um, instead of taking matters into their own hands. And this plays out at every level, even people that are self-sufficient who are able to, you know, earn a living and pay, meet all their obligations and such, mm -hmm. you know, how many of them know how to build buildings mm -hmm. or, um, you know, how to, to fix machines? Uh, or, or how to do carpentry and, you know, uh, plumbing and all of these things. Um, I think we're all capable of, of having this knowledge and ability, but we always are relying on other people. And then that makes us dependent. And when we're dependent, then we can be controlled. Mm. So, so we have to have like a way to transition from this authoritarian. And, you know, now of course the government is trying to go full on totalitarian. So we need a way to allow people to develop their individual sense of responsibility and transition towards a much more autonomous and, you know, distributed, decentralized 
anarchic type of um, organized society. But we can't just do that now because then the, the bad actors will fill the vacuum and try to sabotage it and take authoritarian central control back. Well, don't they need to do that, though, Andy? Because we have um, a pandemic going on right now. Um, uh, people are dying as a result of COVID. And, and don't we have to rely on, on the government to take care of that problem and the way that they're doing? Right. Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about is that um, so, you know, of course, what I've done is investigate the the veracity of the science behind this. But even if you just put that completely aside and let's say, for example, there really was a very deadly virus. And let's say that it had a 30% mortality. So mm -hmm. three out of 10 people that got this disease died. Mm -hmm. And in our personal lives, we've seen our neighbors and family members drop dead. Okay. So that would be a very, of course, scary um, and unpleasant situation to live through. But in that situation, would the government have a right to force us to do um, something to treat that, like some medical procedure? And the, the answer is no. They, they don't have the right, even if there really is something severe, because you have the ability to decide for yourself how you're going to face that risk. So if there is something like that and you feel that it's too risky, you could simply decide to stay home and get all of your groceries or supplies delivered, right? And we've seen people are more than willing to do this. I mean, it's whenever I sometimes get a takeout or a delivery of a you know, meal when those days when I'm just too busy to cook. And I always put in the notes, you know, please hand me the food. Like, don't, I hate when they drop it on the porch and ring the bell and run away. Oh. Right. But if you're really scared, they'll do that for you. Right. So you can protect yourself. You can say, I'm not going to risk going to a store. Or you could say, you know, I'll wear a mask or I'll wear a biohazard safety suit or, you know, whatever you want to do, but it's your decision. But it's when the government starts compelling us to do these things that invades our freedom you know i have the right to risk death if i want right mm -hmm. i mean i can join the military and risk death if i want the government allows that because they're exploiting you for your service but if i want to go out and expose myself to a deadly disease it's, it's my right to do that it may not be smart, <laughs> well, so but there are a lot of things we allow people to do that aren't smart. Our hypothetical scenario is that 30% are dying. But what's the reality now about the, the death rate of this disease? Right. Well, I mean, the reality is, is that there is no objective evidence of a new disease. And um, for the first uh, year and a half of this pandemic, there were a, there was a change in the pattern of death because because of lockdowns and restrictions that resulted in a lot of deaths from suicide and overdose the changing of health procedures in many locations caused deaths from the procedures itself like from putting healthy people on a ventilator from giving high doses of midazolam to nursing home residents in the UK, things like that. There were a month. Remdesivir too? Remdesivir in the United States. But overall, 
there was no change in the death rate worldwide until the experimental vaccines were rolled out. Well, before that, what was the survival rate of COVID itself? Well, there's no way to determine that because there's no valid way to distinguish who has COVID. <laughs> Therefore, you know, COVID doesn't exist because we got to cha challenge our own basic <laughs> assumptions and the, and the science of what we've been hearing. But I've heard 99.97%. You can take that on as a, that's what we're hearing. I mean, yeah, well, certainly, you know, if you think there's a way to define cases of COVID, then those are the numbers that people come up with. But the truth is that that's based on PCR testing. Mm -hmm. Oh. And uh, PCR testing has never undergone a basic clinical validation study. And that's where you show that it measures what you're saying it measures. <laughs> so um, they're just guessing that it's a made up thing that they threw out there. And even if you like, for example, if you're doubtful of what I'm saying, you can go to the FDA website and look for their EUA letter. That's the letter that they sent to the company that makes the test. And it says that basically, even though we have no idea if this test does anything, you can sell it and make money and no one can sue you. So it's a very sweet deal for the test manufacturers. But the truth is the results of the test are meaningless. Even because. if you look, even if you look on the box, it says that. Oh, and it's because Didn't the developer of the test say something like that too. Well, um, I'm not sure, but uh, quite possibly. I heard that. I don't remember his name, but he you, he said this is not, not Roger to be Hodkinson, used, is not, it? You, not to be. I don't know, but not to be used for diagnostic. Oh, Carrie Mullis. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Of course, but but even if you uh, don't take that into consideration, you know, whenever you develop a diagnostic test, the first thing you do is a validation study because you want to see does this actually measure the diagnostic condition that I developed it for. And if you go to the FDA website where there's an application for approval of a diagnostic test or diagnostic medical device, it says step one is, you know, do studies to calculate the sensitivity and specificity. And those are other words for the error rate. Mm -hmm. And this is the validation study I'm talking about. So what you do is you take um, a bunch of people who have the condition by the gold standard Right. So the gold standard, um, even though I don't agree with that, this is a valid gold standard. But if you ask the field of virology what the gold standard is, they would say these virus isolation tissue culture experiments. So you would say, let's get take 500 people or a thousand people do the virus isolation tissue culture experiment and show that they all had a demonstrable virus and then do a PCR or another diagnostic test that you're developing on the same 500 people. Mm -hmm. And then also do it on another 500 people who don't have a disease to make sure that you don't get false results. That sounds like a controlled experiment. A controlled experiment, yes. Yeah, so Surely you, they did that. No, they didn't. <laughs> so they never even attempted to do this experiment. Never even attempted. Because it. in order to get the EUA, they didn't need it. And the FDA the, didn't require it. Well, EUA is an emergency. So basically they're letting you sell an experimental device. The test. 
Yes, because, you know, it's justified by the urgency of the situation. But the requirements to prove that it does what it says it does are practically non-existent. So it's kind of thrown out there to get something out there. And what they're supposed to do is, uh, you know, keep working to validate it so that um, over time they'll have a better quality test. If you look into this, you can tell that there's really no validation of the PCR. And of course, it's chosen because it can be manipulated in so many different ways to give the results that they want. Like if they want 20% of people who take the test to be positive, they can tweak it to that result. You know, we've seen it be even positive from a puddle of water, a piece of fruit, right? It's essentially a roll of the roulette wheel. And then the other aspect is, is that there are no unique or symptoms of a new disease, right? They're essentially the symptoms of the flu or of atypical pneumonia. But loss of taste and smell, I've heard, is unique. No, that always occurred with, vi you know, so-called viral seasonal illnesses. And in fact, I found an article predating the pandemic that said up to 20% of the population experiences that every year, usually associated with, quote, viral infections. Um, and so there's no clear difference going here now, um, although it's possible there could be, you know, something there, but, you know, that's not even a criteria on the CDC webpage, okay? But uh, this certainly not unique. Even if it, it, if there is a new version of loss of sense and smell, it we already have loss of sense and smell with seasonal colds and flu. There's no distinctive or unique autopsy findings. The autopsy findings are similar to pneumonia. Um, so how do you differentiate someone with a new disease if you can't distinguish who has something new and unique then how can you say it exists well because they've isolated the virus ah well that's another um untruth uh so or it's, or it's a half truth because you certainly can find papers that say isolation of a novel coronavirus but then you have to ask yourself well what does that mean exactly so one thing that I learned uh, in my medical training and in my scientific training is always read the methods section of every article. Okay, like I had, um, you know, several people that were training me to conduct scientific experiments. And of course, part of that is reading other people's work. You never know exactly what's being done unless you read the experiment, you know, step one, step two, step three. And if you start doing this, you start realizing that the experiments don't always necessarily prove the results that are claimed. And in fact, you know, Professor Yoannidis uh, from Stanford, a famous epidemiologist, he published a paper in 2005, which is one of the most widely cited papers in all of scientific publishing that most published research findings are false. So when you read any scientific research, you have to be heavily skeptical because you know going in it's more likely than not to be false because they're funded by well there's i think um a major reason is because of the exponential uh explosion in the publishing industry due to the internet era that the number of um you know scientific journals just went through the roof and 
they didn't have enough material to fill them. <laughs> so they had to cut corners on the quality. And then also the peer review system, while it's touted as, oh, is that a peer reviewed study? It's a joke because the peer reviewers may not even read the papers. I've experienced that. Or the peer reviewers don't understand things like statistics. Like I've submitted manuscripts <clears throat> and got back a peer review uh, critique and they didn't understand statistics. So how do I deal with that as a scientist? What do I say? Hey, let me call you up and let me give you a lesson. <laughs> right. But um, so it's it's like, you know, they're supposed to be the arbiters of this, but then they're naive because and it's it's a numbers problem. There aren't enough qualified people to write the papers and there aren't enough qualified people to review the papers. So the quality suffers. And as a reader, you have to be aware of the situation. It's absolutely everyone knows knew about this back then, but they've forgotten now and they don't read a paper with that in mind. Yeah, but surely uh, you've got what hundreds and thousands of medical scientists showing that the COVID virus was isolated and that it that it is indeed COVID. I mean, well, <laughs> we know this. We I mean, we watch TV. I mean, it's right there on CNN, all the science. Yes. Well, TV has certainly, you know, proved it. Um, but uh, what are they basing that on? Is it, you know, a good question. So, um, well, let me tell you a couple of things. So firstly, there are only a handful of people and papers that are doing the experiments with the primary evidence. Like we found a virus, we sequenced the genetics of a virus, mm -hmm. but then you have tens of thousands of papers that are built upon that, assuming it's all true oh. and assuming the PCR test is valid. Mm -hmm. So every paper that you see that gives you any clinical information about COVID, right? Like even the ones that say ivermectin is good, right? The ones that um, uh, talk about the vaccine clinical trials, right? Everything that's out there, it's all based on the PCR test. Mm. So once you realize the PCR test is not valid, then you can just throw all those studies in the trash. But going back to the isolation, um, the problem is, is that when you know viruses are extremely tiny and they can only be seen under the electron microscope at the size they are they're in you know in the 50 to 100 nanometers which are billions right 10 to the minus nine meters so <clears throat> particles this size were not able to be visualized before the invention of the electron microscope and then later on some light microscopes uh, were able to visualize them but unfortunately most of those were destroyed so now they had an opportunity to try and, you know, look for the natural source of a theoretical particle that because there was a theory that there were these particles causing disease, viruses, viruses. and um, then look at them, visualize them directly under the electron microscope. And um, they were successful when looking at these types of particles in bacteria because bacteria um, have these kind of particles. They call them bacteriophages or bacteria eaters, which is really a misnomer from later research, what they learned about them. But they can over and over again 
um, go to a bacterial culture, stress it where it produces these things, and then they can take these bacteriophages and purify them out and look at them under the electron microscope. And when you see images, you see, you know, one thing, because there are a number of them, they all look identical. You know, it'd be like looking at a picture of dogs. Everything in the picture is a dog, right? And then, so you know that you have a dog in your sample. Every picture is a bacteriophage. You know that's the only thing in your sample. And then when you study it, you know you're studying the bacteriophage. So they, they tried desperately to do this by taking samples of tissue from people with illnesses that they believed were caused by viruses like, like polio, for example. And they would do the same purification of the particles that they did with the bacteriophages, which at that time was um, density gradient ultracentrifugation. So separate things by their density. Um, and <clears throat> they were unable to find any particle. No viruses? None, none found. And they were essentially giving up on this mm -hmm. research. What time, what year was this? This was in the early 1950s. Okay. So the electron microscope was invented around 1930. They had about 15 to 20 years of trying to find these particles. They found them in bacteria never found them in sick people or animals. So then this guy, uh, John Franklin Enders, who was working with you know Jonas Salk and other people on the polio vaccine, he came up with this manufacturing technique using, of all things, fetal cells in a culture. So he took like the chopped up spinal cords from uh, you know kids who died of polio, added it to a culture of fetal cells because before that, they thought that they had to use the kind of cells <clears throat> that manifested the disease. So, you know, spinal cord cells, those are very hard to grow to make more virus because they want to make more virus to make the vaccine. Of course, they hadn't shown the virus, so they were making something, but they, they didn't know they were actually making virus, right? So John Enders used the fetal cells in a culture. They're much, much easier to culture and added the you know the disease tissue and use that to manufacture a polio vaccine and later on that manufacturing process was applied to other viruses initially measles by john enders himself but he was just doing general investigation he didn't make any claims that that prove that there was a virus because what happens is when they add this diseased dead tissue to a cell culture the cell culture um, starts to die but they also have unusual culture conditions like they take away most of the nutrition and they add high concentrations of antibiotics and <clears throat> they notice that the tissue in the culture die starts to die and they said that that may or may not be from the measles virus. And then in the same experiment, they did without a measles virus, but they did the, the culture of the cells. In that case, they were using uh, kidney cells from a monkey. This was the, the paper after the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. And they found the same dying cells in the culture. They call it cytopathic effects. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, you know, cellular debris. 
well, yes, there there was cellular debris. They um, the cytopathic effects. They they find essentially a change in the shape of the cells in the culture, and then they form plaques. Um, and there are other findings. I mean, I'm not a, a microscopist, right? But but if you look at these slides, it's pretty easy to see that they don't look normal, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so when they did the experiment without any measles, they still got that cytopathic effects. They call it. That's a controlled experiment disproving what current scientists base their findings on. I mean, that's your point, right? Yes, absolutely. And at the time this was published, it wasn't offered as proof of the measles virus. Uh -huh. In fact, they said it probably doesn't even represent what happens in the patient with measles. <laughs> but it was after this that other scientists took this manufacturing procedure and said that the cell damage they see is proof there's a virus in the original sample. Wow, of measles in that case. Well, of any virus, because this is the only experiment that they've done over and over and over again, and they use this as the primary proof to claim that a new virus exists. But it, this, it proved the opposite. Well, it doesn't really prove anything. <laughs> okay. Uh, because the experiment itself gives you the results. So it doesn't matter what sample you put in. Put in a sample from a sick person, a healthy person, put in no sample at all. You, you guaranteed to show this proof of a virus. Wait a minute, I, I saw the proof of the virus. They're balls with spikes on them. I mean, that, that, that's what a virus looks like, right? <laughs> well, so the next step that they do in this experiment is after they see the cell damage, they take liquid from the cell culture and put it under the microscope. Now, it's important to know that most of the images put out there that say that they're this virus are actually made by an artist. So if there's anything in color or in 3D, that's an artist rendering. That's not a, a scientific image. Oh. It, when you see electron microscope images, uh, one thing is they're black and white. Now, sometimes they colorize them after, but they're always black and white and um, they're two dimensional. And when you look at them, you're like, I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking at. It takes some education to be able to, to, to look at those and know, know what's what. But you certainly can do images and find, you know, these little particles sometimes and they have these little dots on the outside. But the, the thing is, is there's no way to tell what those are because they're in a mixture of a lot of other things. They're from an experiment with many, many factors. And, and by the way, when you do this experiment without a virus, you still get those little particles. Oh. Now, spike proteins? Well, maybe we'll, we'll get to that because there, there's no direct proof of what those little dots are. Oh. But in many other experiments where there's no virus, you see the same exact thing. So for example, there was a paper published in Kidney 360 where from kidney biopsies in people with kidney disease, pre-COVID, they saw the same particles. And there they said, hey, be careful. These can be confused with coronaviruses. And then there was another paper from 2003 where the CDC also recognized that you can't tell the difference with these particles because you're just looking at a particle. You don't know where it came from. And it's mixed with all these other things. In the microscope images, you don't just see one particle you see all these different things. In fact, you even see the cells from the culture. 
Now, in Australia, they published one of these isolation papers. It's called the Rapid Isolation and Identification of SARS-CoV-2 in Australia, something like that. Now, in that paper, when they first looked at the sample in the microscope, they saw little particles that were round in the right size, but they didn't have the dots, which they say are the spikes. So <clears throat> they went back to their sample, added <clears throat> a digestive enzyme, trypsin, which digests proteins, chops them up into smaller pieces, then looked at it again and said, now it has spikes. So now, now it, it is coronavirus. Oh, so that would be like going out to your um, chicken coop and saying, I'm looking for a cat and all you see are the chickens. So you uh, put uh, some cat whiskers, you know, that you draw on the chickens and you put a little, you know, hair thing with cat ears. And then you say, look, I have cats. Is it really that bad, Andy? It, it's really that bad. Um, there's no way <clears throat> to know what those particles are because there's just mixed with cellular debris. Well, that, that would almost be proof of malintent on the part of the medical science industry. Well, you know, at the top levels, there certainly are agendas, right? And one of the main agendas in the industry itself is to market and sell vaccines. You know, outside of, of cancer therapy, vaccines are, I think, the highest revenue generator for the pharmaceutical industry because the government essentially sanctions the vaccines and does their marketing for them, right? You don't need to see ads for the childhood vaccines. You just try to register your child for school, right? And they tell you, you have to, to right? So that's a pretty good business model if the product I make is required by the government. And paid for by the government, which I guess in turn charges us greater taxes. Yes, exactly, exactly right. Right, and we can't sue. Can we sue the, the the pharmaceutical companies if if we get sick or die? Well, so this is really uh, one of the major things to help you understand what's going on with vaccines, because, you know, we're founded on um, principles of democracy and freedom, right? And we have if if you do something that harms me right? You, you should be responsible and you should try to make it right. Okay. And that's the whole principle of our civil law system, right? Of our tort, tort law system is correcting a wrong that's been done. And so in, when, if we make products, that's called product liability. So if I make a, a fireplace and sell it to you and it explodes and burns down your house, then geez, you know, you're going to, you're going to say you owe me, you have to, you know, because you made a faulty product, right? And it caused me serious harm, right? And then I'm going to tell everyone so no one else buys this fireplace, right? And that's the way you make sure that whoever sells fireplaces that they don't blow up. <laughs> so with, um, with vaccines, the vaccine industry, um, initially was getting sued so much from adverse events that they would basically go out of business, right? Because each lawsuit they had to pay out um, and then that cut into their profits. So they got together and went to the government and said, hey, we're going to stop making vaccines 
because we're getting sued. Now, what the government should have said is, <clears throat> your vaccines must be dangerous. <laughs> yeah. But instead, they said, no, don't stop making vaccines. We will waive your liability. This is the FDA saying to the pharmaceutical companies that they're going to waive their liability. Who well, was the FDA? This wasn't um, the FDA. This was, was actually the legislature. Oh, was it? Yes, okay. because they passed a law that basically said <clears throat> any vaccines that are on the childhood schedule are immune from liability from the drug manufacturer. So if you make the chickenpox vaccine or the measles vaccine, which is required for school-aged children according to the CDC guidelines, you can't be sued. So if, you, if your chickenpox vaccine kills a child, you can't be sued. How about your COVID vaccine? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But they set up a special government court that you can sue there but for a very limited amount of money, and there's a time limit. Even if it results in death, there's a statute of limitation that's very short, and doctors are not educated that this system even exists. So with the COVID vaccine, you have another uh, legal loophole, which is the EUA, Emergency Use Authorization, which I talked about before with the PCR test. Yeah. That also provides immunity from liability because, you know, the idea is that the government says there's an emergency, we need something, so we're not going to hold you responsible if you try to develop something good, and since it's a rush, it might harm some people, so we give you a waiver for that, right? But this is being exploited. So what they did is, now you know that uh, there's this rumor that the Pfizer vaccine was approved by the FDA. Yeah. Right. And then that. and then they called it a different name, Comirnaty, right, than the name of the EUA vaccine. Now, <clears throat> in the United States, that vaccine is not available. Huh. The EUA version is what's being used. And the reason for this is based on the liability, because <clears throat> the EUA provides the waiver of immunity from liability. So if they sell the EUA product, oh. you can't sue them. The approved version, you would be able to sue them because it has not been approved for children, so it can't go on the CDC childhood schedule. That's what gives the waiver of liability for an approved vaccine. So they're doing a trick. Yeah. On the market, the availability is only of the experimental version because it has a waiver of liability. Yeah. And then if they get approval for children and then put it on the CDC schedule, then you'll see the approved version being available for sale because they're not going to risk the liability because they know from past experience and they know from what's going on right now that they'd be sued out of existence. Wow. Well, surely, I mean, even though there's an emergency, uh, these, these vaccines are, are safe and effective, right? <laughs> well, no. So for the EUA, they don't have the burden to show that they're safe and effective. But they say that, so there must be basing that on science. Right? Well, you know, for people who are not already entrenched in this issue, and I know many of you, you know, 
already know all the things that I'm saying. So I'm, you know, I'm trying to reach a crowd that's questioning this too. Probably most don't. Oh, well, that's excellent. So, so here's what I would, um, what I would suggest you do to, to investigate this yourself. So the, um, you know, Pfizer clinical trial for their vaccine product, they, after it was, uh, sort of concluded and they unblinded it, they still perform surveillance. It's called post-marketing analysis. Okay. And they had this, um, data and these reports and they, FDA initially said that they were not going to release this clinical trial data for 75 years. So a group of uh, doctors, um, I forget the name of their organization, but they're concerned about ethics and integrity in research. They filed a FOIA request to receive these um, clinical trial data from Pfizer that the FDA had. And the FOIA request was denied, but they went to federal court to obtain an injunction and the judge ordered the records to be released. So now you can get a copy of this report and it's a Pfizer internal document and it covers the first two and a half months of uh, surveillance of the vaccine. And <clears throat> that's where you could find, you know, it's Pfizer's own information, okay? And they reported over 1200 deaths from the vaccine in the first two and a half months. Now, if you go back to the 70s, when they had an experimental swine flu vaccine, and I remember my parents going to the local armory to get their shot, they had about 50 deaths from that. They pulled it off the market. So now we have, you know, 20 times the number of deaths in the first two and a half months from the manufacturer itself. Data, the FDA knows about it, and they don't even have a discussion about pulling it off the market. So you, you know, you look at that document yourself, it's available in the public domain. You can get a copy of it. Um, I have a copy I can share with you if you want to link to it. And later in that document is something that really just, you know, shocked me almost because there's eight pages where they alphabetically list all of the conditions, the, the adverse effects, the vaccine reactions that people experienced in their data. And it's an amazingly exhaustive list of severe, life-threatening, disabling conditions. More than 1,200, I imagine, too. Well, I mean, it is every... It was just the deaths. Well, the, right. Well, some of those, uh, a lot of those probably died of these particular conditions. But yes, there were many, many more who suffered serious disabling adverse events than just the 1,200 who died. Out of how many who took it? Uh, well, I, I don't uh, have the numbers off my head, uh, the top of my head, but, but, but you know, the, the truth is that much of the surveillance is voluntary. So in other words, you know, when you have um, an, uh, a clinical trial where you're looking at safety and effectiveness, right, normally what you do is everyone in the trial you have regular contact. They come in for, you know, weekly visits. They tell you what's been going on. You might do tests, collect data, or you have a phone call, you have a phone interview, you know, at periodic intervals. And as long as you're paying attention to what's going on, you're actively obtaining the information, right? So you call them up. Are you having any health problems? Did you have COVID? Whatever they want to ask. <clears throat> the post-marketing surveillance that we're seeing now is not like that at all. It's what they call passive. Now, when this has been studied, it's shown that passive surveillance 
misses a lot of data. In fact, the um, Harvard Pilgrim Health uh, looked at this with respect to the VAERS reporting system. So that's our voluntary vaccine adverse event reporting system uh, administered by, I believe, FDA and CDC. <clears throat> and that's where people can voluntarily, usually doctors, are required to make the report. So in the Harvard system, they had a large health system and they looked at all their vaccine adverse events in their own system and got the numbers and then compared that to, you know, the amount of vaccines that are given nationwide and the VAERS data. And they concluded that because of the passivity and the barriers of reporting in this system, in fact, I never even heard of this. It wasn't in my medical training. It's only until after I researched vaccines that I even found out about it. Less than 1% of the actual adverse events get reported to the system. That's, a, that's through a study. That's not the study was funded. It was funded actually by um, the um, Health and Human Services, who is the parent organization of the CDC, and they collaborated with Harvard University. So, um, so this you can you can find uh, th this paper. I also have this paper. You know, it was published. This is Harvard research. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you know, for most people, that's the the best quality that you'd find. And what does VERS say in terms of the number of deaths that is, and then we multiply that by a hundred yes if you do you know you're you're in the range of a millions a million deaths as yeah a because the, of the vaccine so i'm not sure what the current numbers but i know uh last summer the numbers were about twelve thousand deaths in the vares reports so you know twelve thousand times a hundred you know is 1.2 million Right? Is my math correct wow. there? Wow. Uh, I, I, I think so. And that's very unfortunate. Uh, I mean, I... So that, by the way, just to, you know, to say, well, oh, if it's that common, why don't I know people? But that's about one in 300 people who received the vaccine. Are life so, insurance companies reporting... Uh, more significant death numbers? Yeah, absolutely. And that's an excellent point to make because, you know, there's a lot of bias and corruption in the public health reporting, right? Because, you know, we people have been encouraged to fill out death certificates erroneously, right? Like people who were died of a car accident or, you know, said to have died of COVID in these statistics. So the, the life insurance industry is excellent covariate to look at because you know, if people die, they want their benefits. So they make a claim. It's reliable. And the health insurance industry monitor, I mean, the, the sorry, life insurance industry monitors this very closely because th that's how they determine what their premiums are, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. If they have to pay out a lot of claims. Yeah. So, you know, um, there was no real increase in death benefit claims for the first year of the pandemic. But when people were supposed to be dying in, on masks well, because of COVID. So I, I looked at this data more specifically, and it was really at June, July. So about six months after the jabs were on the market. And if you look at the uptake or the number of people that got injected, you'll see that there was a sharp rise in May and June, right? In the weeks right before the number of death benefit claims went through the roof. So there was... Um, uh, a large insurance group in the Midwest that reported in June and July of last year a 40 percent 
increase in mortality for ages, you know, I think it was something like 25 to 60 or, so, or something like that, or, or 25 to 40, a younger age group, young, healthy age group had a 40% increase. Now they, you know, see spikes in death periodically um, in the insurance industry, like on the larger time scale because of, you know, natural disasters, um, perhaps, you know, real planned, real pandemics and other things, uh, wars. And this is, was a higher in magnitude than the typical 50 year spike. So extremely significant wow. and clearly there's a, a, the timing is right and the correlation is right to show that, <clears throat> that the vaccines are the cause of that death spike. Andrew, this is really important information. I mean, uh, I heard you speak at the Red Pill Expo. I was deeply moved. After that speech, somebody put a microphone in my face like this one. And they said, Mr. Gage, what do you think about the COVID pandemic right now? And I was speaking emotionally when I responded, which was unfortunate because I'm an expert. I'm actually not an expert uh, on anything, uh, but I, I speak all around the country on, on uh, the controlled demolition of the three World Trade Center skyscrapers. And I'm supposed to, in my duties as CEO of 3,500 architects and engineers representing them, CEO of architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth, I was to be limited, but I was so moved by your talk back then that I just blurted it out. I say COVID is a deep state false flag operation and the vaccines are likely to kill us. And because Slate magazine quoted that a year later or so, whatever it was, um, Spike Lee, who interviewed me in Brooklyn for two hours a year prior to that slate magazine put it in his face and said is, is you're going to have on september 11th on hbo millions of people seeing you talk about controlled demolition conspiracy theories here's what mr gage said about COVID. well spike lee had swallowed the official narrative completely and he was trying to get all the black people vaccinated because they're underrepresented in New York in the vaccinate as a vaccination overall population. So, um, he had a lot of pressure, but he, I think this was the camel that tipped that it was the straw that broke the camel's back. And so he pulled that half hour segment, which he had dedicated to nine 11 truth from his two hour miniseries, 9-11 and COVID, New York epicenters, 9-11 and COVID. As a result, our PR consultant convinced our board that this was a crisis, a PR crisis, and that the CEO, me, 
had to go. So this is one of my main, and this was quite a battle, by the way, the, and the board unwittingly uh, and narrowly voted in favor of my ouster because we don't want these comments coming back to haunt us. And they have a specific mission, and that is World Trade Center. Uh, so I'm now unleashed on my own, and I suppose there's a partial motivation for me absconding with you this morning at Anarchapulco to justify my comments, but they're they really shouldn't have been made, even though they were justified, uh, it seems, by the science or, or the faulty science that you're exposing here. So I guess I just wanted, I feel a little vindicated by this conversation and I'm, I'm grateful. Um, well, and I still take responsibility for losing the greatest opportunity the 9-11 Truth Movement has ever had. That was a mistake of mine. So I shot myself in the foot, but AE911 Truth shot themselves in the head. And it's an overreaction, an unwitting uh, piece of, of, I think, emotional reaction. And and uh, I don't, that's not a question for you, but I wanted to well, bring actually, it up. In, I, I in mean, response. I would like to make a, a comment on that because, you know, of course, um, I'm not a, a, an architect or engineer in that group. But, you know, I've observed this pattern of studying organizations and there's always, this always happens uh, in my, as far as I can tell, um, this happened with organizations that I've been involved with, mm. that <clears throat> initially it takes on a certain mission, but over time, the mission changes to self-preservation, mm. right? They're worried about the cre their credibility, but the truth is, if they really want to expose the truth about false flags about government manipulation, it's the same tactics that are going on with the COVID pandemic. And so it actually supports your mission to uncover the current conspiracy because then it opens up discussion about the prior conspiracy. So it really supports the original mission, but what it does is <clears throat> it risks the um, credibility of the organization and the general public. And that's about preserving the organization, mm. not about the real mission. Very interesting. My, you know, I have absolutely no hope or respect for the mainstream media and the entertainment industry. They've had plenty of opportunities to talk about things truthfully and objectively. Yeah. And that is, you know, far from their interest. Now, of course, when you have an opportunity to, to get your story out through their large platforms, it's a good thing to do because some people that never heard this can hear it and then maybe they'll be curious mm -hmm. and maybe they'll find the truth, right? So there's always the hope of that. Or, or if they, one of their friends starts saying, hey, you know, I'm not sure about this. They'll say, hey, I saw this idiot Richard Gage on Nightline. You should go check him out if you're that crazy, right? And that would be fantastic if that kind of thing happens. But most likely what would happen if you did do that interview is that they wouldn't really portray it in a truthful way because they, they're the gatekeepers to make sure people don't know the full truth, right? So, you know, it's hard to say, you know, it, I would chalk it up to life experience and say, you know, this allowed me 
to branch out and, you know, go places that maybe I couldn't go in the organization. And maybe the organization will see the value of that too. And maybe they'll start to realize that we're facing, you know, a medical version of 9-11 now and that they're going to be suffering the same consequences if they don't wake up to that fact as well. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe there's a significant portion of our supporters at Richard Gage 9-11 and at AE 9-11 Truth that haven't quite heard the, the exposure that you're bringing to the table here and, and that other doctors like Dr. Uh, Rashid Batar, yes. who we're going to be talking to as well, um, are, are exposing that that information needs to get to my audience and the audience that I can reach because you're not you may not be getting to them. No, I know, you know, that um, there are very few doctors and scientists who are really looking at the primary evidence about viruses and questioning germ theory. And of course, it's, it's the most controversial position because often the truth is the most controversial position. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's hard to, to uh, you know, it's not played up on the bigger platforms, right, where that are about health freedom they're not talking about this narrative. It's really hard to get it out there, right? But, um, but you know, I, of course, work day and night to try to educate people and have them just look at this issue for yourself, make your own opinion about it. And, uh, you know, any other doctors who are really skeptical of this or say, you know, it's ridiculous to say that viruses don't exist, get in touch with me. Let's have a discussion. Let's go through the papers together. Let's talk about the evidence. Right? Yes, exactly. Because if you can, you know, explain to me how the evidence does show that viruses really do cause disease, I would change my mind because I'm only interested in learning what the truth is about health biology so that we can make informed decisions about our personal health care and about the policies put upon us. And, uh, I've, you know, I've only come to this position, Richard, by changing my mind about everything when confronted with new evidence. So I would change my mind again any time when I have the evidence that would push in that direction. And that's why I want to have this dialogue with anyone who's willing to have a serious discussion. You know, not, not, a, not a discussion because they have an emotional investment in their, their opinion, but because they're open to changing their mind like I am. And let's just talk about this, the facts, the experiments, and how we can interpret them through reason and logic and intuition. Yes. And you yourself said uh, in your presentation the other day that, oh, excuse me, it was your competitor, <laughs> Dr. Oh. Rashid Batar. No, no, not competitor. Just kidding. <laughs> Another brilliant, uh, powerful activist for the truth about medical science. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I actually was an invited speaker at Dr. Butar's conference last year. So, you know, we're definitely uh, aligned in our mission to help, you know, support education and freedom and, and, you know, the real um, successful ways of providing healthcare, you know, which is not in the mainstream medical system for the most part. Yeah. And he made a strong point. Those who are censored are usually on the right side of history. Those who censor 
the truth, uh, are um, proven to be on the wrong side of history. Well, you know, of course, our whole nation is founded on protecting our right to ex uh, express ourselves freely, right? Which comes from nature, from God, not from the government. Yeah. They're just supposed to protect it yeah. <laughs> or really prevent them themselves from infringing upon it. And what we have in 9-11 is the crime of the century. If 9-11 was the crime of the century, what would you call COVID and, and the vaccination regime? Well, you know, it, it could be considered the, the crime of all time, you know, but um, certainly the nature of speech, you know, of free speech is let people decide for themselves what to believe or what is true. Like let anyone express themselves, put any information they want out there. And then, you know, every individual man and women, woman has the ability to take that in, use reason, right? And say, that's not for me, right? Like, just like, just like with the news media, right? You have people that say, you know, I don't think the information on Fox News is accurate, so I'm gonna listen to CNN. And then other people say, I don't think CNN is accurate, I'll listen to Fox, mm -hmm. right? And then my position is none of them are anywhere close to accurate. I'll go to the primary source material to find my information. Right. And <clears throat> we all really have a burden uh, to find out the truth about what's going on around us because we have to make decisions for ourselves and our family. But anyone who would suppress the information and not allow individuals to decide for themselves, they have to have a bad motive mm -hmm. because what other motive would lead to that? That's excellent. And, and we specialize in 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 exposing the truth, finding those voices in and around the 9-11 truth movement, in the case of Dr. Andrew Kaufman, uh, around the 9-11 truth movement. As you can see, we're unleashed here, and uh, we found an unleashed doctor who's, uh, who's really trying to get the word out there. And I couldn't be more honored, Dr. Kaufman, to, to, have, to sit down with you for coffee and and go where I probably shouldn't have gone earlier, but I'm definitely overwhelmingly encouraged to go there now. And we're going places that I couldn't go at 8911 Truth, that they couldn't go and they shouldn't go. That's They've got their mission and, and I support them wholeheartedly. And um, well, I support you yeah. too. I, I just want to say that I'm actually the one who's tickled to be here because, oh. you know, before I was ever, uh, you know, speaking in the public, um, I, I was already aware of your work. I was on your newsletter list and uh, I was you know a, a very big advocate of what you were doing. And so, you know, the fact that you're even interested in what I'm talking about, I was, you know, I was I was very tickled about that. So it's really, you know, a pleasure to be involved. And as long as you're pursuing truth. I mean, I will always welcome collaboration and I'm sure most of my other compatriots in this movement would feel the same way. Oh, thank you. That is a, that's, that means so much to me, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you. My pleasure.